third in the series of four different Advent Sunday messages. We looked at how peace was lost. We looked at how peace has been pictured in Exodus. And today, we're going to look at Isaiah and how peace is promised. Uh, So you can be turning to Isaiah. Actually, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to be in your Bible. Uh, If you don't, uh, we have some at the back, at the little table there, and encourage you to to get one. Uh, We'll project the verses, but it it is, I think, so much better to have it in your hands, um, be it paper. I think there is merit to having a paper form, but also electronic, which I use as well. Um, We're going to be in Isaiah, moving around, looking at this topic from Isaiah. And while you turn there, uh, I wanted to uh, mention, talk about the topic actually in Denmark and Norway during the winter. um, That part of the world can be, like here, cold and snowy and dark. And they've developed an outlook uh, that has helped them turn what would be perhaps a depressing season into something to look forward to. And they have a word for it. It's called Hygge, spelled H-Y-G-G-E. Hygge, and it it means, um, actually it's connected to the root for the word hug uh, that that we have, but it doesn't mean hug. It means kind of cozy is what it means. And so that's a term that they use for the wintertime. And they maximize that. They, they pursue that. They make a big deal out of that in their culture. And so uh, it's the idea that wintertime is an opportunity to slow down, maybe turn your phones off, make a fire, grab a good book, some cocoa, maybe invite some friends over for a board game, and just be comfortable and out of the cold and dark and just enjoy that, that sort of coziness, that hygge. Well, why do I bring that up? Well, I think that sentiment of, of hygge is connected to the idea of peace. I think that's part of what is pictured in that, and uh, even the overhead shows a picture off of a site on Hugga. Uh, it pictures really what would be peace. The, the Bible calls it shalom. Uh, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, and, and that is probably closer to Hugga than our word. Often we use the word peace to uh, mean different things, but it doesn't always capture the whole picture of what the Bible uh, has for us, this peace where it's, it's harmony, it's well-being, it's wholeness. Uh, it's not just uh, not having turmoil, but it's a wholeness. It's harmony and wholeness together. And, and I think it's often at Christmas time, it's kind of the, the hygge thing that attracts us to Christmas. Uh, the, the, there's a sentiment that we, many of us have, and, and yet it can be elusive, can it be? There's just times where we're so busy, uh, we are busy and we lose focus, and it ends up being a season not, with not a whole lot of peace. So for that reason and many others, it's uh, important for us to revisit this topic, to look at what the Bible teaches us on peace. Just this past week, actually, uh, I was reading a book by Andy Farmer, pastor and author Andy Farmer. It's called Real Peace. And in his book, he says something, I think, very profound. Uh, he really says that peace is kind of the, the goal for the Christian life and for God's uh, creation and new creation. We often think of love as the highest virtue, and certainly love is, love is the highest virtue, but love's goal is peace. Love is for the sake of peace. We are to love God, live in His love, and love Him for peace and harmony in our relationship with Him. We're to love others for peace in our relationships with others. And so uh, I think just a profound statement on peace and its importance in God's universe and in the Bible story. And we crave this. We long for it. And often it's elusive. So I trust as we're going through this series, looking through what the Word teaches us on peace, uh, we're learning about it. And I trust we're experiencing it and learning how to live 
in his peace even amidst a world that is often full of turmoil. So we're going to go through Isaiah, and we're going to start in chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7 to start us. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this idea of peace, this truth of peace, this reality of peace that you've made us for. We thank you, Lord, that you have um, that you have pursued us and are pursuing us in, in Jesus to restore this peace, to bring us true peace. We thank you for how your word functions in that. And as we gather today, we're not just going through an idea, but we're here to encounter you. So I pray you would use the teaching and preaching of your word, the hearing of it, that we would be transformed by you in light of what you teach us about peace. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Starting Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, and then following through to verse 7. Um, this book of Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophecy from Isaiah to Israel in a time when they had wandered and they were not experiencing peace because of really their own sin. And so Isaiah is a mouthpiece of God to them to call them back and to call them uh, to his promises. And so he says in Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This wonderful promise is given first in this first context to the people of Israel. It's a promise of peace. It's a promise of rescue from turmoil. It's a promise of of God answering them uh, in their distress. For at the time, they had wandered from the Lord. And we learned last week in Exodus that God's plan was that they would live under Him and His gracious lordship over them, His gracious rescue of them from Egypt, and under His law, which is the pathway to peace, with His presence dwelling in their midst, which really is the reward of peace, the centerpiece of peace, is peace with God and to have Him in our midst, to enjoy Him and love Him. That was what He had built for them and called them to. And yet by the time we get to Isaiah, even before, they've wandered from that. They've wandered into to disobedience, disbelief, and evil. And, and God has been very patient with them for hundreds of years actually, calling them back to His ways, calling them back to faith in the God who rescued them, back to faith and obedience under His law, back to treasuring His presence above all things. And yet they had run to idols. They had run to false gods. They had run to disobedience. They had forgotten what God had done for them. And so He brings discipline as promised. And so 
he allows foreign nations to come in and invade the land. So the land which had been held out as a place of peace and blessing now in the time of Isaiah was a place full of devastation and curse. And the northern section of the land was the first, the, the most wayward part. So they had uh, gone the furthest away from God. And they were the first to be invaded. And it's to these people that Isaiah, that God through Isaiah, brings this promise that this land that's dwelling in darkness, this land that is in rebellion, this land that has rebelled would see light. That God would come in and, and where now they know the warrior and the trampling warrior and the battle tumult and all these things, they will in the future know peace. And so His promise to them is a child to be born, a son to be given, and a, and a son whose government will never end and will bring peace. And, and as we read in Isaiah 9, we, we see that this is no mere human because He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is not as some might have understood it, uh, the, the son of the king at the time, which would be Hezekiah. Uh, this is not a promise that Hezekiah will come and you'll experience this. And We know in the, if you follow the storyline that didn't happen. Hezekiah could, could not be described as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah is looking forward to one who would come who is no mere human, who is God in the flesh, who is this child to be born, this son to be given, who would bring a, a kingdom, a, a government of peace and justice and righteousness. We know this is true because this is how the New Testament understands this passage. Matthew chapter 4, it says, "...and leaving Nazareth..." Speaking of Jesus, He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the one, the, the child who is born, the one who is to bring this government of peace. The one who is no mere man, but is God in the flesh. He's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And He's come to bring them peace. He's to establish a government of peace. It'll be on His shoulder and He will be called these things. And it says in verse 7, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So He comes to bring peace. To bring a government of peace. It's interesting, the word government uh, can seem like an oxymoron with peace. A government of peace because our experience in these days and really much of history is that Often governments don't bring peace, but they bring war. But this is the one perfect form of government that Christ brings. There's no perfect form but this one. It's a government that brings peace. It's a kingdom that's to come and bring justice. Things that are right and good. All evil and strife is to be banished entirely. Only remaining peace and goodness and justice. 
And He's going to establish and grow this kingdom and, and it will increase until it eventually swallows up the whole world in peace and goodness as Daniel pictured in his vision. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a guaranteed truth. This is guaranteed by God Himself. Who He is. He is the Lord of hosts. He is over all. He is King of all. He's Creator of all. And He is intent on bringing about this government of peace. This reign of peace. And it will swallow up every other government in the world eventually. All the world will be under His rule and reign and know this glorious peace. It's a promise. It's a guaranteed promise. Christ has come to fulfill it. And oh, how we need it. How we need this peace. How we need a peace that is so different than the peace we might experience temporarily. How we need a a kingdom of peace. How we need the restoration of peace. How precious is this promise in a world that's full of tumult. As I said, too often the governments of this world bring anything but true peace. That was the case back in 1914 where the major powers of Europe all with monarchs over them who happened to be first cousins, by the way, went to war with each other. These major powers in July 1914 went to war in the war to end all wars. And this cataclysmic conflict, unprecedented really until the time, uh, was a war where over 16 million people were killed. Um, That to us may seem like a smaller number. I mean, it's a big number no matter how you look at it, but in today's equivalent, as far as the size of the population, it would be a war where 65 million people die. Can you imagine a war like that? Can you imagine a war where large civilizations, significant civilizations lost anywhere from 10 to 50% or more of their young adult population? Ages between 18 and 35, uh, anywhere from 10 to 50% in some of the countries. Can you imagine that? Just uh, if you're 18 to 35, half of you or more are gone from this terrible war. Half of, of every... Uh, French soldier who served in combat was killed. Um, It would be the equivalent for us of losing 15 million Americans in a war. That's what this uh, great war was like. It was a terrible war, but amidst the brutality of the war, something remarkable happened. Uh, In Christmas 1914, after the war had been going on since July, it was early on in the war, the, the French and the Germans and the British were lined up against one another in trenches mere yards apart. And many of these people who served in in these different armies actually grew up relatively near each other. Uh, Some of them grew up in border towns. Many of them spoke each other's languages. Many of them actually went to school in their enemy's country. And here they are in the war lined up against each other in this brutal battle. And yet it was Christmas time. And something remarkable happened Uh, that Christmas, 1914. It happened actually all along the front. It it often started with some of the soldiers in one of the trenches just singing a Christmas carol. And then what would happen is the soldiers on the other side, the enemy side, would start joining in because they recognized the the Christmas carol. They would sing in their own language. And, And they would go back and forth singing together. Then they started shouting out to each other, Merry Christmas, Julio Noel, Froha Weihnachten. Uh, Merry Christmas in all their different languages to each other. Then some bold ones got up out of the trenches with truce flags and went into the 
the middle of the, the battlefield uh, to meet the other soldiers. They exchanged gifts. They had a joint memorial service for those killed. They played soccer together. And in some places it lasted for days, even until New Year's. Uh, it was extraordinary, carried in the papers. Um, and if only it had continued beyond New Year's. It soon uh, was followed by back into the trenches and back to war and then on to terrible, brutal bloodshed. These sorts of stories, these sorts of experiences make us long for the peace that's promised in Isaiah. Make us long for His reign to come and His rule to be full. Make us long for the, the cessation of strife and disharmony. Make us long for Him coming and reigning in a way where there's no more war, no more crime, no more hate, no more injustice, no abuse of power, no bad citizens, no road rage, no crabby customers, but perfect harmony, prosperity, generosity, and wholeness. That's the promise of Isaiah. That's the promise that God gives us in Isaiah. He promises to fulfill that longing in a glorious way. He promises to make that Christmas truce our, our constant reality for eternity. And it says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God is behind this. God has said, if I do anything, I will do this. I will accomplish this. I am committed to this. I am zealous for this peace being established. It's a sure promise from the Lord that He will establish this. He will bring it about. It's not a mere pipe dream for us to hear stories and be sentimental about at Christmas time. It's a reality that comes in Christ, through Christ, and will be fulfilled. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to set our hope on the promises of God. We need to set our hope on this promise that's guaranteed to us through Christ. It will happen. It will be accomplished. God will do this. It will be our eternal reality. It awaits us in Christ. And we're to live for that peace that comes with the full reign of Christ. But this peace that comes that's promised through this kingdom comes at a great cost. It's guaranteed by God, and we know it's guaranteed because of the price that God Himself paid to make it a reality. Isaiah gives us more details as we move along in the story to chapter 52. We learn more about what this peace, what this kingdom costs Him. And in chapter 52, in uh, Near the end, verse 13, we, we meet a new character in the storyline. We've met this child who is to be a prince and a king and to rule over a kingdom. This one who is God in the flesh will bring this, this peace. But here in Isaiah 52, verse 13, we don't see what looks like a king. We don't see a conquering king on a, on a chariot vanquishing his enemies. We see a servant, a suffering servant, a lowly servant, humbling himself below others to serve and to go through terrible suffering. And so we learn more of the story here in Isaiah 52, verse 13. So let's read 13 and following. It says, Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And many, as many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall He sprinkle many nations. 
kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people? And they made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death. Although He had done no violence and there was no deceit in His mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hands. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the many. And He shall divide the spoil with the strong because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. What a fantastic passage of Scripture. And as I prepared it, I thought maybe I should just read this and move on to the next point. Because it, of course, captures everything that needs to be said about this suffering servant. This is the Prince of Peace here. This is the Mighty King. And this is how He conquers. He conquers by serving. He conquers by lowering Himself. He conquers by, by being rejected, by receiving the punishment that we deserved on Himself. Each of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. There was no reason that He needed to do that. He didn't need to suffer. He had no deceit. He was faithful. And yet He bore our iniquities. He went to the cross and suffered on that cross and died in our place. This is the price that is paid for the establishment of this peace, this beautiful, glorious peace that we long for. It comes at the cost of God the Son given on the cross, dying and bearing the holy wrath of God for our sins. 
There's not a higher price that could be paid, by the way. There's not any price that compares to the price of the blood of the Son of God for us. There's not a higher price. And that's why we can with assurance know that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this peace. Because if He's given His very Son to reconcile us to Himself, to cause sin to be atoned for so we can be accepted, then He indeed will finish the job and bring full and everlasting peace under His worthy Son. It's amazing. And I, probably every Sunday, recognize or just how unable I am to communicate to you what this means. And how easy it is for us just to hear it and move on. And not recognize just the amazing truth that God Himself in the flesh took on our sins. Took on your sin. Took on my sins. All of these sins. These personal sins. The ones that we didn't, don't even know about. But also the ones we know about. Each and every one of them on Himself. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a wonderful verse, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. He knew no sin. This is God. Sin is most important to God. God is perfectly good. Perfectly just. Perfectly loving. Faithful. He's light. There's no darkness. There's not even a shadow of darkness. He is only good. He's only perfect. He's only glorious all the time. And yet, astoundingly, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. God in the flesh knew no sin, and yet He became sin as He took on our sins. As He identified with us in His death. Your sin. My sin. Our rebellion, our turning away, our failure to love God with all that He deserves. Our failure to love one another as we ought to. He took all that sin, all types of sin, whether it's the most obvious or the hidden subtle types, all of it on Himself and became sin and then died in our place on the cross. Suffered the justice of God for us. That's how peace was purchased for us. Through this costly price. And it's so important in so many ways to understand that and to understand what it means and to live in that. And it's so important as we live in this world that's full of tumult and we hear the promise of peace in Isaiah and maybe feel like, you know what, I'm not feeling it. Life is hard. My health is declining. I've got a family member who's wandering away. I lost my job. All those things, and you hear these promises, and you might think, this, this is like, what is, is this just pretend? Is this real? But when we visit the Gospel, when we come back to Jesus, and we see what He did, and what He went through, that He took on Himself the, the, the opposite of peace, the complete polar opposite of peace, the, the, the turmoil, the suffering, the sorrow of bearing sin for billions of people, all who would come to Him bearing their sin and then suffered and died. There's, there's no worse suffering. There's no worse horror than what He went through. And so to think that somehow peace is just fantasy or elusive or God doesn't care is not consistent with the Gospel. Because He has gone through this and He has paid the price for you 
to rescue you from your sin so you can know peace. You can know that final peace in Isaiah 9 when it comes, when He returns in the fullness of it. And you can know peace now amidst your turmoil because He's for you. And He has dealt with your biggest problem is not your circumstances, is not your health. Your biggest problem is your broken relationship with God that apart from Christ, you are lost. I am lost in your rebellion and my rebellion and my sin. And He paid this price of His blood on the cross. He died for your sins specifically should you believe in Him. He died for your sins specifically so that you can be forgiven, you can be reconciled to Him. And you need not fear any circumstance if you live in light of that Gospel because He is for you. He has overcome the world. And you have peace. And He's shown how much He cares for you. So amidst your, your struggles, God has not forgotten you. He has gone through worse struggles than you ever will so that you might need never go through them. He is with you. He's for you. So peace is connected to the Gospel in, in these ways. And He has paid this amazing price for you to know peace. He is the Son who was given in death on the cross to reconcile you to God, to bring that peace, to pay the price so that you could experience peace with God and you could experience the fullness of it as Christ brings His full reign. I hope that I hope that makes sense. And I hope at least we can understand it should make sense. Lord, help us understand that. Help us live in what You've done for us. Help us stand on Your work on the cross, Your death for our sins, Your resurrection victory over sin, Your reign right now from heaven, and Your future full reign that we might know peace even in that we might understand what You have done. The peace is promised through His sacrifice. In 1962, Don Richardson and his wife Carol and their seven-month-old baby went to work among the Sawi tribe of New Guinea. The Sawi tribe were cannibalistic headhunters who valued deep treachery as their highest virtue. So when Don and his wife shared the Gospel story with them, when they got to the part about Judas, the crowd cheered because Judas, in their mind, was the real hero of the Gospel story because they valued treachery as the highest virtue. How do you reach a people who, who see Judas as the hero in the Gospel story? These uh, different villages, he was among three different tribal villages, they were in constant battle with one another and the warfare got worse and worse and the Richardsons actually considered leaving the area because it, it was just too crazy. And the tribes uh, wanted the Richardsons to stay really because the Richardsons uh, sought to bring some sort of peace, but even more importantly to them, the tribe, they brought medical supplies and modern tools. And so the tribes uh, were eventually persuaded to make peace. And, and the Richardsons had tried and tried and tried to somehow communicate to them the peace of God and the truth of the Gospel. And yet, in God's providence, this peace... Uh, ceremony was conducted by the tribes. And, and in the ceremony, in the, in, among the tribes, they had a tradition when they really wanted peace, what they would do is they would exchange the uh, young boys from each tribe with another. So they would actually take like the, the baby, young, young man of the, the chief, and he would be given to the, next, the, the chief in the next village. And so they would exchange children. And the word for the child was called peace child. 
And that was the opportunity that Don Richardson needed. Because that's what he took a hold of that story, that reality for them. Um, and and they, they actually did the ceremony and they were at, uh, lived in relative peace. But he used that experience to communicate to them the real peace child. Christ, God's Son, given for us to make peace with God and peace with one another. And he shared that with them and, and they got it. They understood the Gospel. They understood and received Christ and they were transformed. The, the, really, the, all these villages, the Sawi people were transformed. They were brought from darkness to light. Uh, their warfare ceased. They started intermarrying among the tribes. They had hated each other previously. They built the, the world's largest um, church building made out of poles. Uh, so the largest church building in the world just made out of poles was built right there in their village. I think it stands to this day. They started sending missionaries to the surrounding tribes to spread the Gospel and the peace of God. The peace child has been given for us in Jesus. We are at peace with God through Christ. The peace has been purchased for us. It's ours. Put your hope in the God of peace who brings perfect peace through His Son. And then we continue in the story of Isaiah to chapter 66. It speaks of peace as well. It speaks of the final peace that God brings. The promise of the final peace that is to come. That peace is promised through His final judgment. And judgment in Scripture is both positive and negative, by the way. We tend to frame it as negative. But judgment is, is the final decision, really. It's the final decision to reward those who have turned to Him, who have fled to Him for peace, and to bring justice to those who have rebelled. So it's the final decision, the final judgment in that sense. And so Isaiah 66 pictures this for us. Uh, so let's read in verse 12 and following. He's speaking to the people of Jerusalem and those who love Jerusalem. And by the way, Jerusalem means city of Peace, right? So verse 12, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword will all, with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into gardens, falling one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see My glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, that, you have not heard, uh, that have not heard My fame or seen My glory. And they shall declare My glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. 
And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before Me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before Me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against Me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So in the storyline, this is the end of Isaiah. The storyline that's speaking to a people who are living in tumult about the peace that God would bring. So we've looked in chapter 9. He promises to bring a, a child who will become a king bringing a governance of peace. He's explained to us in Isaiah 52 and 53 that it comes through the price of the suffering servant dying, we know, on the cross for our sins so that through faith in Him we might be forgiven. And by the way, it's that simple. Um, the, the amazing reality is that God offers and extends His peace to us if we would only receive it. So I have sent My Son... God has so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What's the condition uh, on our part? His condition is that He loves us. He loves the world. He loves the world in its rebellion. He wants us to know Him. He sends His Son. And our condition is what? We, that we believe. That we simply believe. Uh, that we receive. And, and uh, the believing in the Bible is not just I believe it's true. It's a receiving. It's an embracing. And the wonderful... Reality is this peace is ours just for the receiving. Just turning away from our self and turning away from our rebellion, turning away from trying to do it on our own and receiving this peace. It's ours. So we see that in Isaiah 52 and 53. And now in Isaiah 56, it gives us a picture of how it will come finally. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be an end to rebellion and evil. There'll be a rewarding of humble faith. There'll be... A uh, his reign will come in fullness and it will last forever. It will be eternal. It will be given in a way there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sin. We've, we've seen this before, haven't we? We went recently through the book of Revelation. And in Revelation at, in chapter 21 in that surrounding area, we see very similar statements to what we just read in Isaiah. So Revelation 21, 1-5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the promise of Isaiah 66. A promise to those who would receive it. that He will make all things new. New creation. No more brokenness. No more sin. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more strife. No more evil. No more evil thoughts and intents in our own minds and hearts to wrestle with. Freedom. Being made in the image of Christ and the fullness of that. Being glorified. Can you imagine only wanting to do what's right and good all the time? 
how wonderful that would be. The, the Christian's condition is, is, is being caught, right? Where we have the Spirit of God in us. We have the law of God in our hearts. We love God's ways. We want to follow Him. We want to love Him. We want to love others. And yet, we still have uh, indwelling sin. We have our broken humanity with us still until we go to be with the Lord. And so we live. Paul says you don't do what you want to do. He says that both in Galatians and in, in Romans 7. That's for the believer. We don't do what we want to do. The unbeliever doesn't have that problem. The unbeliever just goes with whatever they think. Now, they may be aware of the moral law, but they don't really love it in the sense that a believer does. But a believer loves the law. Wants to follow. And yet, we have indwelling sin. And so part of the, the peace that we lack is just around that, isn't it? I know what I ought to do. I want to do it. Why do I keep on thinking these other things? Why do I keep doubting? Why do I, why do I keep being tempted by these things? I want to be free. And you will be free. You will be free when He comes and renews all things. There will be no more evil in the world. There will be no more sin. Not in you. Not anywhere. But only love. Perfect, pure love for Him and for one another. Now, He's fully able to keep us now. So, so I'm not saying you've got to wait. <laughs> you know, and you're just going to fail and that's it. No, He keeps us. That's why we do what we do here, guys. That's why we get together on Sundays. Because how He keeps us is by doing this. Hearing His Word. Gathering together. Worshiping in song. Encouraging one another. Celebrating communion. These things keep us. They keep us. They strengthen us. They help us. Being in the Word. Being in prayer. He will keep us, but He uses these means. But there will be a day when, when there won't be that struggle in that way. And we'll live in a world without that struggle. He will reign in, in fullness. And it will be glorious. And there will only be wholeness and prosperity and worship and joy. And best of all, and we see in Revelation and we know from what we've seen in the Old Testament, God will dwell with us right there in our midst in an unprecedented, uninhibited, full way in all of His glory. The creation is only a mere reflection of the genius and goodness and power of God. And certainly we are to enjoy those things as means of, of worship of God, but we'll have God Himself in all of His fullness and all of His glory. It's one thing to listen to a good piece of music. Let's say Tchaikovsky. You might listen to the Nutcracker and be like, oh, that's really good stuff. Imagine if Tchaikovsky was your dad and you live with him. And like, that was just normal life all the time. And he's just like whistling new tunes or whatever that are just, wow, where did you come up with that one? I mean, that and so much more is what it is to have God in our midst and to know Him and to be with Him. And it will be just so sweet and it will never end. That's the promise of here in Isaiah 66. If the band could come up as, as I conclude. And, and so, we're to live in these things. We're to live in this promise. We're to live by this promise. These promises... This truth, the promise of peace through the kingdom, the promise of peace through the sacrifice, the promise of peace through final judgment, that's the truth that creates the Christian chuga. This sense of peace that should pervade our hearts comes from these truths. And when we live in them, we can make peace even when we're in turmoil. We can make and enjoy peace in this season and in all seasons. So as we conclude, I just want to encourage you to think through how you need to 
understand peace and how you need to bring peace to your own life. How you can take these truths and apply them to maybe where there's tumult in your life. Maybe it's just how you're thinking about the holidays. Maybe it's how you're thinking about your struggles. And letting these truths fill your mind and change how you think about those things and to meditate on the truth that you are at peace with God. You are forgiven. You belong to Him. To meditate on the truth that you have perfect peace coming. Hope, really, is is what that is when we look forward to the peace that comes. Hope is to function strongly in our lives. We we can't be so caught up in today that we're not looking forward to tomorrow. And, And if you look forward to tomorrow properly, it will influence your today. It works that way. I, I uh, try to work out every week. And one of the things that I do in my workout is interval sprints. They're supposed to be really good for you just to help you lose weight. Um, and that's my ever-present challenge as a 54-year-old. Uh, well, the other side of it is my ever, I always like to eat. I like to eat a lot. And I, and I have trouble losing weight. So anyhow, interval sprints are supposed to work really well. So an interval sprint is you do... Uh, one minute really hard. I do it on the elliptical or the stair machine. One minute really hard, as hard as you can go. And then two minutes you rest. You, you just kind of go slow. And when I was young like that, one minute really hard wasn't that hard, but now it's brutal. It's awful. It's like it feels like the worst thing in life to go through that one minute. But you know what gets me through? It's only one minute. And then I get those two minutes. I can't wait for those two minutes. And so the whole one minute, what I'm thinking about is what? The two minutes coming. And that gets me through. And I actually do like... 10 cycles of that. And and I know it's kind of silly. Like, well, you're just living for the next two minutes. Yeah, that's how it works. That's how this truth is to work in our lives. This is coming, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It will happen. And, and, And you will have to pinch yourself when you're there just thinking, wow, it really has happened in its fullness. And certainly for us, if the Lord doesn't return, when we go to be with the Lord, it'll be apart from the body, it'll be with the Lord, and we'll experience a a great foretaste of the fullness, but then there'll be when He returns and restores all things. This is for us. So let's get through the one minute sprints here, remembering the two minutes that await us. That's how this to function. And then love. So as you hear, faith, hope, and love, the virtues of, uh, prime virtues of Christianity are connected to our understanding of peace. Love flows because we realize, you know what? He's purchased this peace for me. He loves me. This is for me? Wow, would you do this for me? You would love me like that. And now because I know I'm loved by you, I want to be part of extending that peace to others. I want to love people. I want to serve others. Those who are closest to me. My spouse, my children, my parents, those in my church, those outside who don't yet know Christ. I want to extend this peace to them. I want to love them. And so peace has everything to do with the Christian life in all these ways. So let's just take a minute before we transition to communion just to consider is there one thing the Lord would want you to to change in your life in light of these truths about peace. One way, maybe it's just, you know what, Lord, I need to think like those those interval sprints in my life. Or maybe there's someone that you need to, to live in love, God's love, and therefore extend peace to them. Let's take a minute to do that, and then we'll come back and we'll celebrate communion.